You are listening to Dividing the Nation, the first in a sermon series entitled Low Roads and High Places, a study of First Kings, preached at Hokesson Baptist Church in the winter of 2009. And now, Pastor John Boulay. Well, good morning. If you would turn your Bibles to First Kings chapter 12. We're going to be in Kings for nine or ten more weeks. If you ever, uh, I'm kind of a history buff, and if you ever went to like get a history book and it didn't have its cover or its uh, copyright page, you could pretty much figure out when the book was written by looking at the last chapter of the book. Almost every time in a history book, what will end up happening is the last chapter of the book kind of has uh, this reflection. Typically, historians will reflect in, in some kind of uh, way that, re- that shows their current setting. So uh, if we had a book, let's say, that didn't have a cover, it was an old book, and we opened it up, and the last chapter, he, the author spoke very solemnly about the war to end all wars. We would know that this book came from somewhere just after the First World War, but before the Second World War... Otherwise, he would have known that it didn't end all wars. Uh, Well, that's kind of what is happening, or what we can do with the account of the books of Kings in the Bible. When we look at the books of Kings in the Bible, we can turn to the last chapter of the book and get get a, a grasp or a feel as to why the Bible is being written and what circumstances... Uh, or not the Bible, but these books are being written, and under what circumstances First and Second Kings are being written, because the, the book of First and Second Kings ends this way. It ends uh, speaking of how the Israelite people have been brought into exile into Babylon, and the kingdom is destroyed. And that's the setting in which Kings is written. Kings is a response of the leaders of, of what we think, of the leaders of the Hebrew people, to this question of what happened? Were we God's chosen people or not? Is what the Israelites are probably asking themselves when they're in captivity, in exile in Babylon. Was, was Yahweh not sufficiently strong enough? Is there something wrong with God that we would be uprooted from the land He promised us and brought into exile? Is it that the Babylonian god of Marduk is more powerful than Yahweh? Is that what's the problem? What is the problem? Why are we here? That's why First and Second Kings is written. It's written to show the people that they are there not because of God's failure or lack of power, but because of mankind's faithlessness. The Jews are in Babylon not because God couldn't keep them in Israel, but because God sent them to Babylon. The covenant that God entered in with the Jewish people was one in which they had certain requirements, the people had to uphold certain requirements of the law to receive the blessing of the Lord. The Lord says in Deuteronomy 28, if you do these things, you will be blessed. If you do not do these things, you will be cursed. In fact, he says you'll be cast from your land. And so the book of 1 Kings is a systematic approach to the history of Israel to explain to the people, you are in Babylon because God will no longer suffer your faithlessness. You are in Babylon because God will vindicate himself. Throughout the accounts of of kings, what you find is time and time again when the people of Israel are met with the chance to take the high road or the low road, they take the low road. 
almost every time, there is, is a history of low roads. When you read First and Second Kings, you're met with an occasion that when the people have the decision, do I worship God, the Almighty God, in His temple, in Jerusalem, His holy place, or do I worship the idols, the many idols in the high places around, time and time again you find that the Israelites opted instead to worship in the high places. It is a story of low roads and high places that demonstrates why the people are in exile, why the Lord seems to have abandoned them. And that's what we're going to talk about for 10 weeks. Sound fun? Good. Well, here's a few rules I want to, I want to kind of narrow it down. I, I thought about teaching First and Second Kings in their entirety, but uh, uh, that would take 52 weeks, and I would have no congregation at the end of that time. So I've narrowed it down a little bit. What I will be doing, the first thing I'm doing is I'm going to be picking up in the story where your common knowledge stops. So I'm assuming we all have a general idea about King Saul and then King, King David, and then there was Solomon, and I think for the most part we're hip with Solomon. Wise guy, there was a thing with the baby, almost got cut in half, but he was pretty smart. But after that, by and large, I think this room is not so smart anymore. What happens after Solomon? I don't think we're very well read on. So I'm going to pick up where I think our common knowledge leaves off. That's the first thing. The second thing is, in the next 10 weeks, I will primarily, if not entirely, focus on the northern kingdom called Israel. So what we're, and what we're going to talk about this morning, in case you didn't know, is that after Solomon, because of his faithlessness, the Lord put a huge rift in the nation. And 10 of the 12 tribes seceded from the Union and, mid, and, and stayed in the north, and they called themselves Israel or Ephraim. And they were their own nation. And the remaining two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, remained in the south, and from this point on, become called by the name of Judah. It's Judah in the south, and Israel in the north. And we know very little about Israel after the book of Kings. In fact, the Israelite history is one of almost utter destruction. There is even difficulty with the Jewish nation today tracking the bloodlines of any tribe other than Levi and Judah because uh, Israel is almost utterly destroyed and the best that they can salvage are Samaritans around the time of Christ. It's about as good as they get. So we're going to look at that history, the history of the northern kingdom. Third, our examination of Israel through 1 Kings, the northern kingdom, will continue through the reign of King Ahab. By the time we get through King Ahab, we're not, there's still a number of kings left, but the trajectory of sin is established. At that point, I can kind of say dot, 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 and you'll know what I mean, because there'll be this firm trajectory of faithlessness and of sin and of wickedness by King Ahab that we can kind of bring, just to kind of interpolate, or is it extra, extrapolate? I guess it's extrapolate, to, to the point where Israel gets destroyed in 722 B.C. So those are our criteria. We're looking at 1 Kings, after Solomon, northern kingdom, through Ahab. It's kind of like this. My wife saw a shirt the other day, made us laugh. Any good Philadelphia Phillies fan can appreciate this. It was a big shirt that said, the Philadelphia Phillies. And in big font underneath it, it said, undefeated. And in smaller font, it said, in the postseason. And in smaller font, it said, at home. And then in smaller font, in 2008. So that's what we're doing. We're doing first kings after Solomon of the northern kingdom through Ahab. That's our goal this morning. 
And so uh, please pray with me and we'll turn to Scripture. Lord Jesus, we commend to you not just this morning, but the whole sermon series, Lord, that we might become better students of your word, that we might embrace all of your word as youthful, useful and the, as profitable to disciplining us and growing us in you. Lord, we pray your sovereign will over our lives. Father, we know you're here, Lord. We just pray that we would be here to meet you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there are some sections in the Bible. I kind of think of them as being more ancient than other sections of the Bible. The whole Bible is old, but there are sections, and I don't just simply mean books. There are moments in Scripture when you read that you can feel this feeling like what I'm reading is really deep and mystical. I can't even begin to understand the full depth of what's saying because it kind of echoes of this primordial ancient caveman time when God spoke and we're trying to understand exactly what was going on there. An example is the whole creation account, but certainly Genesis chapter 3, when you read it, when God speaks his curses to the man and the woman and to the serpent, there's something in me that just intuitively knows I'm supposed to remember this conversation. It seems like a more important conversation than the Cain and Abel conversation even. There's just something about it that has this ancient power. There's another one in Genesis 15. If you haven't read it, I encourage you to. It's when God places a covenant with Abram. And he puts Abram to sleep. And he gives Abram this vision of all these animals cut in part. And the Lord passes through as a flame, making a covenant with Abram and fulfilling his promises to him. And it's when you read it, our modern minds can't grasp what's exactly going on there. We, we, we get caught with the gruesomeness of the imagery. We, it's, it's bizarre to think that this would happen. And there's something that says it's really important, but I don't understand exactly what's happening. Genesis 28, for me, is one of the best ones. Somehow, God manifests himself on earth and wrestles with Jacob. What does that look like? I can't even begin to understand. The only thing I can understand is I don't understand. It's, it's almost mythological in its like magnitude of the story. It's like Jason and the Argonauts. The idea of Jacob physically grappling with God. It's just fantastic to me. And it's times like that when I know I don't understand, but I should pay attention. And maybe one day, God will explain it to me. These ancient moments. Well, the one we're going to look at this morning... Because in Genesis 49, you don't need to turn there. I'll describe it to you. But it's this, this closing moment in the book of Genesis. Genesis is, closes in Genesis 50. But in Genesis 49, right before Jacob dies, he turns to the 12 tribes or, or his sons, and he speaks a prophetic blessing over them. And I don't mean blessing like he speaks a nice thing about them, like, may the Lord bless you and keep you. It's actually almost like an eternal prophetic word over their tribes. So he turns to them and, he's, and, and he'll say to Gad, he'll say, Gad, here's a little thing. And by and large, for about 8 of the 12, it's just something, it's, I mean, I don't want to make light of it, but it's like, Naphtali, you will dwell near the seashore of Sidon. I mean, it's kind of informational. Uh, somebody else might be like a deer in a field. You know, nice to know, but it's not earth-shattering. There are three that are actually feel like curses to Reuben, Levi and Simeon, because of their sinfulness in the family, they, they, they're downright curses from Jacob. Jacob. Jacob curses his own sons. He says, because of your sin, you've lost 
the love of God. In fact, he says Levi would be scattered, which is exactly what happens, isn't it? The tribe of Levi was scattered throughout Israel. It says the tribe of Simeon would be scattered. Simeon was dissolved. Simeon, by the time of, of, of our scripture reading, has no land anymore. That's just kind of dissolved into other nations. But there's two tribes that he says something significant about. He says a little bit to some of them. He says some negative stuff to others. But there's two tribes that when Jacob speaks, he speaks volumes of blessing. Naphtali, he'll be by the seashore near the Sidonians. But to Judah, he has almost a whole column of prophetic scripture. This is what your life's going to be like, Judah. It sounds like this. I think there's a slide. It's in Genesis 48. This is what he says to Judah. So it shouldn't be in Exodus. You are a lion's cub, O Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. Like a lioness who dares to rouse him. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nations is his. He will tether the donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. He will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes will be darker than wine, his teeth whiter than wine." For, for those of us who have grown up in a Christian tradition, when we read the blessings of Judah, we see Christ written all over it. Do you see it there? The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he comes to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nations is his. That's Jesus. And we, we, we don't have a problem believing that Judah was blessed. Anybody who knows the story of Christ knows he's in the line of Judah, son of David. He's called the Lion of Judah. What does this start? Judah, your brothers, you are a lion's cub, it says. Christ is the Lion of Judah. There's one other tribe, though. This tribe in Genesis, he calls it Joseph. Joseph, over a turn of events, ends up becoming Ephraim. That's how Ephraim is spoken of. So right now, the, the blessing is to a person named Joseph, the blessing itself passes to Joseph's favored son, Ephraim. Joseph had two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. The blessing goes to Ephraim. But this is what it says. It says, Joseph is a fruitful vine. A fruitful vine near a spring whose branches climb over the wall. With bitterness, archers attacked him. They shot at him with hostility, but his bow remained steady. His strong arms stayed limber because of the hand of the mighty one of Jacob, because of the shepherd, the rock of Israel, because of your father's God who helps you, because of the almighty who blesses you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lie below, blessings of the breast of the womb. Your father's blessings are greater than the blessings of the ancient mountains, than the bounty of the age-old hills. Let all these rest on the head of Joseph, on the brow of the prince among his brothers. I hardly need to mention Judah, but what about Ephraim? Where's the blessing of Ephraim? Early on, it seemed that Ephraim would be blessed when they entered the promised land. On entering the promised land, Joshua takes the people to two mountains. There's a Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, and it's right next to it is this town called Shechem. 
And in Shechem, they pronounced the blessings and curses of the Lord. The Hebrew people gathered on the mountains. On half the mountain were half the Hebrew people, and they echoed the blessings. And on the other half of the mountain were the other Hebrew people, and they echoed the curses of the covenant. And right in the middle was the tent of meeting where worship was occurring. So it was on one side of the mountain, blessings of God. One side of the mountain, curses for sin. And God dwelt in the middle. That was at Ebal and Gerizim at Shechem, which is the capital city of Ephraim. So certainly when it started out, Ephraim was blessed. When the, when, the, when the Jewish people would gather to muster their troops to go take over land, where would you think they would meet? At Shechem. If there was a problem, a time for a big family meeting of the tribes, because they were always at war, sometimes with one another, where did they meet? They'd meet at Shechem. Ephraim was also the home to the holy place, the tabernacle of God that's traveled with the people through the wilderness. When the people came to rest in the promised land, where did, where did the Ark of the Covenant of God rest? It rests in a town called Shiloh, just south of Shechem, in the land of Ephraim. So Ephraim started out having the capital of the promised land, the point from which the promised land, the people in the promised land left and came back. Ephraim started out having the holy place where the Ark of the Covenant of God dwelled, where people would come, where the priests would grow. Samuel, who was in the tribe of Levi, grew up in Ephraim. He was an Ephraimite as far as where, his, where he had grown up. The judges, many of the judges, were from Ephraim. Ephraim seemed as though it was the first among the brethren. And then the people asked for a king. And what tribe did the Lord turn to? Benjamin, of all the people, Benjamin. In fact, the prophecy of Jacob to Benjamin is pretty negative. He turns to Benjamin, and he gets what he asked for. He gets Saul, who is such a mediocre individual. And when the Lord rejects Saul as king and turns to another tribe, does he turn to Ephraim? No. He turns to Judah. And not just to Judah, he turns to a farm boy in Judah. If you were an Ephraimite, you know what you'd say? What about Ephraim? Am I not prince among my brothers as the Lord had spoken through Jacob? Am I not prince? What about Ephraim? Here's salt in the wound. When the King David, who's established his kingdom, goes to establish a capital city, does he do it at Shechem? The obvious choice, where all the Hebrew people have always gone to, does David settle in Shechem? No, he moves the capital city where? To Jerusalem and Judah. What about Shechem? What about Ephraim? When it comes time for the Lord to say, build my holy place, does he say to Solomon, build it on the place of Shiloh where I have dwelt for hundreds of years in the tent of meeting where the ark of the, tab of, of, of the covenant of God has always been? Does he say that? He says no. He says, build my temple on the high land outside of Jerusalem. And so in two generations, Ephraim watches them not only lose the kingdom, but they lose the capital and they lose the temple of God to Judah. If you were an Ephraimite, you'd say, what about Ephraim? Where is this prophecy? If you were Gad, you wouldn't, whatever, I got my land by the seashore, or whatever it was, you know, I got my two seashells and a donkey. But Ephraim was prince among the brothers. Ephraim had a whole column of prophecy. Ephraim was first. 
What about Ephraim? Well, when it came time to pay the bill for the palace and the temple, did Ephraim get to pay the bill? Yeah. They did, absolutely. Solomon builds this huge temple, it takes seven years. He builds a huger palace, which takes longer. And who does pays for it? All the tribes evenly distribute the cost of the, of the beautiful city of Jerusalem in Judah upon themselves. And so if you were a working man in the tribe of Ephraim, one month out of the year, you would be selected and you would be conscripted to be slave labor in Tyre to pay for Solomon's temple. How do you like that? If you were uh, somebody in Ephraim, somebody would come by each year to levy taxes on you to pay for Solomon's palace and all of his wives. Jerusalem and Judah get everything. What about Well, there's a man in the court of Solomon. His name was Jeroboam. He was a capable man. He was successful at everything he did. He was kind of a rising star, and he was from the tribe of Ephraim. Solomon saw the skill that Jeroboam had, and Solomon placed him in charge of the whole house of Joseph, which is Ephraim, to manage the conscripted labor and the levying of taxes and all the issues Jeroboam was essentially the ambassador of the king on the part of Ephraim. He was very capable. And one day Jeroboam is leaving Jerusalem. He's walking out. And a, and a prophet from the, the town of Shiloh, which is in Ephraim, his name is Ahijah, Ahijah stops Jeroboam on the road and they're alone. And Ahijah sees him and says, Jeroboam, stop. I have a word from the Lord for you. And Jeroboam stops because everybody would if somebody said that to you. And Ahijah takes the cloak off his shoulder and he starts to tear it. And he doesn't tear it once, he tears it six times into 12 pieces in front of Jeroboam. And he says, Jeroboam, because of the sins of Solomon, because the way he has turned away from me and has not worshipped me as God alone, I am renting the kingdom from his hands and I am placing it in your hands, is what he says to Jeroboam. He says, because of Solomon's faithlessness, I'm giving you 10 of the 12 tribes but because of my love of David and my covenant with David and my promise to David, I will not give you all 12. He will retain two, which ends up being Judah and Benjamin. But all the other 10, Jeroboam, they're going to you. And he gives Jeroboam 10 of these pieces of cloth from the cloak. Well, let's just say if you were in a kingdom which had heavy taxes, high bills, slave labor, and the borders are experiencing unrest, how fast do you think news like that would travel? The descent in the land, the news of this travels fast, and Solomon gets word that Ahijah met with Jeroboam, spoke this word of prophecy over them, and what do you think Solomon does? He puts a price on Jeroboam's head, tries to assassinate him, and Jeroboam escapes to Egypt. But Solomon is old. So Jeroboam goes to Egypt and he waits. And then Solomon dies. And that's where we start. So if you'll open, we'll start. That's where we continue. This has all been scripture, by the way. Just like the message version. If you'll turn, please, to 1 Kings 12, what has just happened, Solomon has just passed on. 
Rehoboam, his son, that's Rehoboam, not Jeroboam. It's kind of a mix-up. Rehoboam, his son, has become king of all of Israel, and the people have something to say about that. So I'll read the first 17 verses, 1 Kings 12. Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all the Israelites had gone there to make him king. When Jeroboam, son of Nebat, heard this, he was still in Egypt where he had fled from King Solomon, he returned from Egypt. So they sent for Jeroboam, and he and the whole assembly of Israel went to Rehoboam and said to him, Your father put a heavy yoke on us, but now lighten the harsh labor and the heavy yoke he put on us, and we will serve you. Rehoboam answered, Go away for three days and then come back to me. And so the people went away. Then King Rehoboam consulted the elders who had served his father Solomon during his lifetime. How would you advise me to answer these people, he said. They replied, If today you will be a servant to these people and will serve them and give them a favorable answer, they will always be your servants. But Rehoboam rejected the advice of the elders, gave him, and consulted the young men who had grown up with him and were serving him. He asked them, What is your advice? How should we answer these people who say to me, Lighten the yoke of your father put on us? The young men who had grown up with him replied, Tell these people who have said to you, Your father put a heavy yoke on us, but make your our yoke lighter. Tell them, My little finger is thicker than your father's waist, my father's waist. My father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips, I will scourge you with scorpions. Three days later, Jeroboam and all the people returned to Rehoboam, as the king had said, come back to me in three days. The king answered the people harshly, rejecting the advice given to him by the elders. He followed the advice of the young men and said, my father made your yoke heavy, I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips, I will scourge you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people, for this turn of events was from the Lord to fulfill the word the Lord had spoken to Jeroboam, son of Nebat, through Ahijah, the Shilonite. When all Israel saw the king refuse to listen to them, they answered the king, What share do we have in David? What part in Jesse's son? To our tents, O Israel, look after your own house, O David. So the Israelites went home, but as for the Israelites who were living in the towns of Judah, Rehoboam still ruled over them. To your tents, O Israel, is what they say. In other words, they've said, we have had enough with Judah. What part do we have with David? What part do we share in Jesse's son? To our tents, to our own business, O Judah. That's what they say. Now the time came here, this setting here, is the opportunity for the people of Israel to recognize Rehoboam as their king. That's what's happening here. And the kind of the ancient tradition, as best as we know, that what happened is when a king would come forth, the people in his kingdom would come to his city, would kneel, and would acknowledge his kingship. In other words, they would publicly profess their allegiance. That happened with Saul. That happened with David. We presume it happened with Solomon. But does it happen here? Does it happen here in 1 Kings? Is that what Rehoboam receives? Does he receive a ceremony of allegiance? No, quite the opposite. He receives a conditional statement. If you, then we'll, is what they say. That's certainly the obvious part of their descent, but there's something even as significant as that that's not quite on the surface. Did you notice, by the way, where they, where they invited him? 
Rehoboam went to Shechem. Where is Shechem? Shechem is the capital city of Ephraim. Who is there? Jeroboam is there. Do you see this? The wheels are already in motion for rebellion. They don't go to Jerusalem to say, if you lighten the yoke, we'll follow you. They say, Rehoboam, why don't you come to Shechem? And we'll talk there. There's already an attitude of independence. There's already an anticipation. I wonder if that's why Rehoboam speaks as foolishly as he does, as he sees this as useless in the first place. To even call the king out of Jerusalem, leave your capital city, come to what we think has always been the capital city, and we'll talk to you there. And oh, by the way, Jeroboam is here also. That's what it says. It says Jeroboam came, and he met with the people there. This thing is already in motion. And they give an ultimatum to the king. Rehoboam, he dissolves any opportunity or hope for peace. It's in Shechem that, the, that Ephraim and their desire for independence comes out. And they secede from, the, from the, the kingdom. And guess who they make king? Jeroboam. So by the end of all of this, Jeroboam is king. And finally people are saying, now what about Ephraim? Finally, the blessings of Ephraim have been realized. Finally, in Jeroboam, we have our peace. Henceforth, the northern kingdom is called Israel, or, as more common name, is Ephraim. The ten tribes simply adopt the name Ephraim. For the rest of Israelite history, when the prophets write, they write to Ephraim. So here's our question this morning. I have two. The first question is, how did this come to happen? How did this come to happen? How did this disaster of God's people come to happen? If it was in court, probably the primary reason, the primal cause of this whole mess up is Rehoboam. Wouldn't you say? Had Rehoboam just behaved himself or kept his mouth shut or, or used a little wisdom, we might not be here. Certainly, we can imagine people saying that. Rehoboam certainly didn't make things easier. But I think there's more causes than that. Like I've said already, I think the wheels are already in motion. That's uh, delineated from the fact that they call him to Shechem. Jeroboam's there. There's this attitude of independence that's already pronounced. They are, in a sense, their own people. Already they are their own people. And so I would consider that at least a secondary cause, but is there something else? Is, is, are those the real causes? I don't think so. Let me read to you the 15th verse again. So, this is speaking of Rehoboam. So the king did not listen to the people, for this turn of events was from the Lord. To fulfill the word of the Lord had spoken to Jeroboam, son of Nebat, through Ahijah, the Shilonite. The writer of Kings responds, the reason Rehoboam behaved this way was because the Lord had determined it so. To a people in exile, wondering what has happened, the authors of Kings are saying, things like this don't just happen. This isn't a turn of events that just happened outside of the hand of God. Nothing happens outside of the hand of God. That's what the authors are saying. This happened because God deemed it so. In fact, with a word, with a few spoken words, 
God raised up Israel and he took it down. Do you see that? All God really did, right, in this whole scenario is send a prophet to Jeroboam and confuse Rehoboam or make Rehoboam say some pretty foolish things. Those two things make the kingdom topple. With words. God raises kingdoms up with words and he tears them down with words. And when we look out, when we look out today and we see the mayhem or what we consider the chaos around us, the political unrest, when our borders don't feel safe, we don't know where lunch money is coming from next week, we need to know and appreciate that nothing is outside of the word of the Lord. There is nothing, zero, that is outside of God. God is not the God of good news who is offset by an evil bad news demigod. God is the God of good news and of bad news. Good news is in the hand of God. Bad news is in the hand of God. With a word, we are subject to God. I'm not suggesting that this was God's perfect and pleasing will. Certainly, hard times is not God's pleasing will. God's perfect and pleasing will is Adam and Eve in the garden eating from one tree or eating from everything but one tree. That's his perfect and pleasing will. This is God's sovereign will. God's sovereign will is what he works out in our lives in a fallen world so that one day we might experience his perfect and pleasing will. That's what the sovereign will is. We cannot escape the Lord. There is nothing going on in your life that is beyond God. He's not surprised. He's not powerless. He's not less than some other God. He's not uh, incapable or has forgotten about you. It's part of his will. And if we're going to understand God rightly, we need to at least admit that. Even if we don't like what we see, we need to at least acknowledge the fact that God sees us, he knows it's here, and he controls it. We can't even move on to worship if we don't see this. How do we worship a God who we doubt, we doubt cares? How do we worship a God if we doubt he controls? Nothing is out of his hand. Here's the second question. So if God did do this, why did he do this? We're allowed to ask those questions. Although I would say, I would pastor us, that we should be very careful with the ways we ask God questions. We should ask him careful questions. Questions that don't put him on the spot. But questions that in and of themselves are worshipful. Earlier today, when, the, when, when Gina was leading worship, she said, there's this cycle of holy, 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 and then turning back on ourselves and going holy, holy, holy. And I would say, any question you ask God that's prefaced with a sincere holy, holy, holy is a good question. And any question you ask God that is not preceded by that attitude is one that ought not to be asked. How can we enter into a dialogue with God if we don't precede it with holy, holy, holy? But why did this happen? I think the answer has been hinted at all morning, but it certainly is... I've got to find my Bible first before I find it. It certainly is found in chapter 11. If you'll read chapter 11 with me, this is why it happens. I'll read the first 11 verses. Did it get warm in here? All right. This is the first 11 verses. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter. 
Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. They were from the nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Moloch, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely, as David his father had done. On a hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Hemosh, the detestable god of Moab, and for Moloch, the detestable god of the Ammonites. By the way, that's the Mount of Olives. He did the same for all the foreign wives who burned incense and offered sacrifices to their gods. The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. So the Lord said to Solomon, Since this is your attitude, and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. That's why it happens. This happened, God did this because Solomon was faithless. And we're forced to ask anybody who's by common knowledge knows Solomon was wise. We know that. So we have to ask ourselves, how is it that someone so wise ends so poorly? How is it that the wisest man in the world ends so faithlessly? Why? Well, I think the answer is, is because the beginning of the way of God is not wisdom. It's fear. The beginning of the path of God is not wisdom. You, there's nothing you need to know to get into the kingdom. You need the fear of God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. When Solomon had the fear of the Lord, his wisdom was godly wisdom. When Solomon lost the fear of the Lord in later years, his wisdom turned into foolishness. The fear of the Lord is what brings us into community. It isn't how much we know. I celebrate that. I celebrate the fact that I don't have to stand here and say, you need to learn enough to make it into the kingdom. For those of you who are smart and cunning and crafty and intelligent and well-educated, the kingdom is for you. But if you're a simpleton, there's no kingdom. That's not what Christ says. Christ says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. That's freeing. That's saying you don't have to know something. You simply have to lay down before the Lord. You simply have to kneel before the Lord and honestly say, holy, holy, holy. And he says, welcome in. This is the beginning of wisdom. Solomon got it all backwards by the end of his life. Solomon said, I will turn to intermarrying with foreign nations. I'll turn to settling disputes by bringing people into my household, by accommodating neighboring religions. That way other nations will be satisfied and then we'll have peace. And God says, you have lost the fear of the Lord. You are now a fool in the eyes of the kingdom. To people in Israel wondering what went wrong, or excuse me, to people in Babylon wondering what went wrong, is God not strong enough? The writers of Kings say, 
The problem is that the people lost their fear of God. Nothing is outside of his power. We simply have fallen outside of his fear. This fear is not a fright. It's not a fear of what God would do to us. This fear is a knowledge, is taking seriously what God says about himself. That's what the fear of the Lord is. The fear of the Lord is actually believing the Lord when the Lord talks about himself. That's what we need. That's what we need in our lives. And that's what gives us faith to persevere when we don't understand why God would do things.